Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Come closer to the campfire, Greg Nook. Put the buffalo skull on your head and make talk talk about the old time when pictures did fly through the air and appear on the box of knowing. Is that a reference to television? A word I, I do not know, but may have heard in the old legends and poems of the shining time before the snows came. You know, the power's only been out for two hours. Maybe you're overreacting. Tell us a story about the time Jorda, the snow wolf, overreacted and bit the leg of Netflixie, the trickster god with the bright red fur. I will hand you the stick of talking. Look, it's a bad snowstorm, and yes, we have no electricity, but that's no reason to revert to a state of primitivism based on rank superstition and fuzzy memories of a more technologically advanced yesteryear. Surely the owl god speaks through his lips with such pretty words from the time of four wheels and putt-putts. You mean cars? We'll dig the car out tomorrow. This man speak to us in words from the old times when we plugged the bright little squares into the charger man and knowledge sat right in our hands. She means smartphones? Today on The Scramble, we will speak of how the snow came and the shiny pictures that people watched and the paper words they looked at and made other pictures in their heads. Yeah, she means books. And now the old man of our tribe, he is known as the one who saw the snow eagle when he left the cave to make water in the night, Colin McEnroe. It is true, I, I do get up and leave the cave a couple of times per night. <clears throat> it's the thing that happens with age. By the way, I apologize for my voice today. You know that flu shot you're supposed to get? Get that flu shot, okay? Well, I, I, it's probably too late, or almost too late, but this is the first year I didn't get a flu shot, <clears throat> and uh, just, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but get your flu shot. Every year, always get your flu shot. Get other people's flu shot, too. Uh, all right, so as you know, there's a storm heading our way. Uh, people are very worried about it. We decided, in fact, that people were so fixated on the storm, there was no point in talking about anything else today. So later in the show, what we are going to do is sort of prepare you, because you're going to be stuck in your house, you know, for at least a day and maybe more. Uh, ideally, you'll have power, so you'll be able to watch some television. We're actually going to tell you things that you can watch to keep yourself from going crazy. And then towards the end, for when your power goes out, books you can read. Uh, by candlelight after your power goes out. But before we do all that, before we prepare you for being snowbound, let's talk about why it is you're being snowbound. And so to do that, uh, Ryan Hanrahan, NBC Connecticut meteorologist, joins us now. You know, uh, Ryan, first of all, welcome back to our airwaves. Thanks for having me. Uh, You know, I follow your Twitter feed religiously, and I only recently realized you're not dating a European model. Uh, (laughs) Whenever you talk about the European model, I think, oh, he's like going out with Claudia Schiffer or something. No, 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 no. Basically, what we have, Colin, is we have two main computer models that we use. We have the American version and the European version, and the European one is far and away the best computer model we use. So normally we wait to see what our friends overseas have for their computer model forecast, and that's more often than not the forecast we wind up going with. Now this this storm kind of fooled the models a little bit more than contemporary storms do, right? Yeah, it totally did. Um, you know, as, er, as 
early as, let's say, Friday morning, it looked like the storm was going to be fairly harmless, out to sea, not really a big issue. Um, and then Friday night, the European model came in and said, whoa, boy, uh, this might be trouble uh, come Monday night and Tuesday. And then by Saturday afternoon and Saturday evening, all the computer models sort of converged on that solution. But to have that happen three or four days out is actually really unusual these days. Normally we'll see a storm coming seven or eight days out. Um, but 10 years ago, this happened all the time, where it would not be unusual to have a storm sort of appear out of nowhere 48 hours out. That almost never happens now. It's sort of a testament to just how far weather forecasting has come. One of the things that I know way too much about, unfortunately, is the blizzard of 1888. And one of the things <laughs> I, I got interested, not because I lived through it, I mean, but because I just do know too much about it. And I got interested in, at one point, there was a National Weather Service at that time. But yeah, they, there was, yep. they did not know this storm was coming. Part of it was because they kind of observed the Sabbath a little bit. So, I mean, it did a lot of its building up on on Sunday when a lot there was almost nobody around in there. New York Station, uh, and the other problem with, was, was that they were very dependent on telegraph wires, which started going down really fast yep. as the storm came up the coast. So um, it was just, you know, it was sort of a, obviously a different time. Well, but, and also, they I mean, they had no computer modeling then. There were no computers. So what you had is you had uh, weather observations that were telegraphed across the country and, and in Canada and Mexico, and they all sort of came to the Weather Bureau in D.C., and they would look at a weather map and try to guess what would happen a day or two out. But we have computer models now that are doing billions and billions of equations to try to figure out how the atmosphere will move. So, uh, you know, 1888, we were still 75 years before modern-day computing. They had uh, large wooden laptops, actually, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> what a laptop a would abacus. Yeah, they were so the laptops were so big they would take up a city block. That's <laughs> they didn't have that sort of microprocessor thing happening. So, I mean, uh, obviously, not to make you just to just be a busman's holiday for you in doing forecasts, but we're still talking about an enormous storm with a lot of wind, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this looks like it will be a, a pretty impressive blizzard in southern New England. Um, we get them every once in a while. They're not terribly unusual. We know how to handle them. Um, you know, we had the February 2013 blizzard not too long ago, which everyone remembers. Uh, Boston had a really bad blizzard in January 05. So there's storms we get probably once or twice a decade. And, you know, thankfully, unlike hurricanes and tornadoes, these are things where if you take, you know, a minimal amount of precaution, they're relatively safe, and you can sit at home and watch TV and try to enjoy the storm, especially if you don't have to go to work. Uh, by the way, if anybody has a question, we can do a little Ask the Weatherman with Ryan Hanrahan from NBC, Connecticut. Uh, it's 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I have to do my question, which is uh, involves using my favorite word, a word I do not actually understand. Will there be bombogenesis? <laughs> well, everyone loves that word, especially meteorologists. Uh, yes, there will be. So basically what bombogenesis is, is you take a look at the pressure. If you have a barometer at your house uh, that measures atmospheric pressure, and what bombogenesis is, is you actually find out what the pressure is at the center of a storm. So if there's a barometer sitting at the center of a storm and you follow that storm for 24 hours, you see how fast the pressure falls. And if it falls more than 24 millibars in 24 hours, it's called bombogenesis. We refer to a storm that does that as bombing out. It's basically a, a fancy term for something that 
uh, a storm that strengthens very quickly and very rapidly. And those are the, the biggest kind of storms we get. But pretty much every blizzard you get in, in southern New England goes through that process. So it's nothing that's unique to this blizzard. Um, the National Weather Service, I think, did use the phrase possibly historic uh, in connection with this storm. I don't know whether that's a term you're comfortable with. I mean, in, in, is there any sense in which this storm could be possibly historic? Well, I, I never like to use that term until the storm's pretty much over or after the fact. It mm-hmm. seems to me something that you can determine afterwards. Um, there's a lot that goes into a, making a storm historic. Um, for example, the blizzard of 1978, which, of course, many of your listeners remember, it wasn't really the amount of snow. There was two to three feet, so I mean, it was a lot of snow. But it was the wind. The winds gusted over hurricane force, and suddenly you had uh, snow drifts that were... 10, 12, 15, 20 feet high. Um, and that's what really paralyzed the state for three or four days. Um, so will this be a, an historic blizzard? Certainly within the realm of possibility. Um, but what we normally see in these kinds of snowstorms is you get a very narrow band, maybe only 30 or 40 miles wide, where the heaviest snow falls. In the blizzard of 2013, that just so happened to be over Bridgeport, New Haven, and Hartford. So for the majority of Connecticut residents, that was a record-setting blizzard. If you were out in New London or up in Norwich or Killingly, it was sort of a more run-of-the-mill blizzard. Um, so I think those comparisons are best done after the fact. But, I mean, this does look, it has all the, the makings of a classic. You know, it's interesting when we talk about sort of the historic significance of, of any particular storm, we're usually thinking in human terms and about human consequences. Mm-hmm. And I want to come back to one thing that you said a few seconds ago that strikes me as really true, which is, you know, the, when you look at the history of storms and what they've done to people, they tend snowstorms tend to do bad things to people when people go out in them. Uh, and, and if people don't go out in them, there are, I mean, uh, once again, I know way too much about 1888, which in which there were very few deaths in the countryside because people who lived in the country understood how to get through a storm, and the main way you did it was you didn't go outside until it was over. And whereas people who lived in the cities, and there'd been a huge migration into the cities, there wasn't there weren't so many ex- even accepted understandings about do you go to work, do you not go to work? You know, what were at the beginning of kind of urban commerce in a place like New York City. So a lot of people were just walking around New York City, being blown over into snowdrifts and killed simply because they didn't even have a rule to stay inside. Well, and the other thing about the blizzard of 1888, for people who don't know, is I think people don't understand how incredible that storm was. Uh, you had uh, Middletown had 45 inches of snow. Hartford had over 40 inches of snow. New Haven had about 50 inches of snow. So these were incredible snow totals with wind gusts to about 70 or 80 miles per hour. So you had snow drifts that were bearing entire buildings. There's a, there's a great story in New Haven of uh, a few apartment buildings there um, right on. I'm not sure if they were called apartment buildings at the time, but people were living in relatively large buildings, and you had milkmen who were climbing up to deliver milk through third-story windows (laughs) and these houses. The other thing with that storm is the temperatures were also incredibly cold. The wind chills were 30 or 35 degrees below zero, so you had people actually froze to death outside who were totally unprepared for the storm. Thankfully, now we see these things coming. A storm like the 1888 storm, we probably see from a week out, at least. Uh, and so, you know, it sort of shows you just how far we've come. Um, but the, so much of the key of it is, I mean, if you know, obviously, if you're an emergency worker or one of the people who's involved with helping people in situations like this, it's a different story. But almost everybody else is sort of a non-essential employee who should be staying inside, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, obviously, some people have to go to work. I mean, uh, there's if you're a doctor, if you're a reporter on TV, you know, you're expected to be there. Uh, but for most people, it's, it's sort of a great opportunity to you have a day off in the middle of the week, you know, hunker down, spend time with the family, play some board games, watch TV. You know, these storms can be fun if you don't try to venture out in the middle of the night. That's when that's when problems arise. When are we expecting the end of this and the the time when people can venture out? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It looks like the, the worst of the storm comes in tonight, probably starting about midnight, lasts through about midday on Tuesday. And then it will wind down, but really slowly through the day Tuesday. So I think there will still be bands of heavy snow from time to time and winds that could gust to 50 or 55 miles per hour during the day Tuesday. So Tuesday will be getting a bit better late, late in the day, but it's really not until Wednesday morning that we can sound the all clear. Um, are, are there things that you don't know still? I mean, I, I guess the, you, you've alluded to where the, the bands of the heaviest mm-hmm. snow is. Is that still the, the remaining unknown? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say the two remaining unknowns, where exactly that heavy band sets up, does it set up over the northwest hills down toward New York City, which is certainly a possibility, or is it a bit farther to the east? Is it over Hartford, Middletown, Meriden, and New Haven? That's a possibility, too. So that would separate towns getting you know, 20 or 24 inches of snow from getting up to and over 30 inches of snow. So getting in that band is sort of important. The other thing that's, that's always really difficult to pin down with these storms is just how strong the winds will get at the surface. Um, so right now we're looking at winds that could gust up to about 60 miles per hour in southeastern Connecticut. But those forecasts are always really tough uh, to, to figure out for a number of reasons. Um, and so that's sort of those are the two main things we're working on today, trying to figure out exactly how strong the winds will be and how many power outages we'll see. And the second question is, where does that heavy snow band set up? Ryan Henry, and we had a question from a caller uh, uh, who wanted to know, what is the difference between American and European models? It was from Tom Brady, too, and you'd think he would know uh, the think, difference between well, those two. Well, there models. is a Brazilian model, actually. There's a Brazilian model as well, yeah. It's, <laughs> no, we don't even want to go there. Um, so um, so yeah, in terms of these computer models, what is the difference? Yeah, so, so basically there, you, you're using a ah, – let's, let's see easy way to answer this question. So basically a computer model takes – the initial conditions, take, takes a snapshot of what's happening in the atmosphere at a given time, and uses equations to figure out what will happen two, three, four, five, six days from now. The problem is, is it's impossible to take an accurate snapshot of how the weather looks across the entire globe. No matter how good our satellites and observing stations are, there's some uncertainty in there. And the problem is, as you go out in time, those errors grow exponentially. The reason why the European computer model is superior is, A, they've spent a lot more money and they've put a lot more resources into it than the U.S. government has um, for years and years and years and years and years. And so we're, we're, we're paying for that now. Um, and they're able to assimilate the data better. So they're actually able to get a better initialization of how the atmosphere wor- looks across the globe than the American model is. And so that, that's the basic difference. Ryan, uh, watching your Twitter account yesterday as these things began to accelerate a little bit and it became more clear that Connecticut wouldn't be divided up between a blizzard in the south and, and mm-hmm. a regular snowstorm in the north, I could see, you know, you've been in here one day talking a little bit about how, you know, how incredibly energized you've always been by being a meteorologist and how, you know, it was really something that started for you at a very young age. 
it, you, this is sort of your bread and butter, right? I mean, you, I, one could read your Twitter account and sense you getting re- – I know that you're getting excited in your Twitter account when I stop understanding what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that, that's pretty much what happens. You know, we actually – you know, Bob Maxson and Brad Fields, we were just sort of talking right before the show started here in the Weather Center. So, And we, we were going – we were talking about the storm, and all three of us came to the consensus that it will be impossible for us to sleep tonight for a combination of nerves – excitement, hoping the forecast goes well, and knowing that you can always pick up your phone and take a look at more weather data. Um, So for us, this is, you know, these storms are very exciting, but they're also pretty nerve-wracking. You know, we look at it as you have hundreds of thousands of people in the state that have changed their plans because the storm is forecasted, and we want to make sure we put our best foot forward and give the best forecast. And know that, you know, if the storm, for some freak reason, didn't pan out, which we're not expecting it to, there would be a lot of angry people out there. All right, uh, one quick call from uh, Suzanne, and we know you've got a lot of work ahead of you to do. Yeah. Uh, here's uh, Suzanne in South Windsor. Yeah, hi. I just have two concerns that I just hope you can help alleviate. Um when is I know I lived in a storm out in Colorado one year and like roofs were collapsing all over the place. So like when do we need to start worrying about whether or not roofs are going to collapse? And then the other question is, um, with power outages, do you have any tips for like how people stay warm or you know what will will we get power outages? Do we need to worry about that? Okay, those are great questions, Suzanne. So. Um, first one, do we have to worry about roofs collapsing? Uh, generally, one snowstorm isn't enough to start causing that. We had in January of 2011, I believe there was, we had 54 inches of snow during the month at Bradley Airport. And when that happened, that was when we started seeing roofs collapsing by the second or third storm uh, because of all the weight. So one storm, not a problem. Once you start getting two or three storms back-to-back, then you start getting issues. Uh, so that's the first one. Second question is, is when you get an extended power outages, especially in South Windsor, uh, power outages will be generally isolated, maybe scattered. This won't be anywhere near as bad as the October uh, 2011 snowstorm where we had power outages that seemed to last forever. Um, so this one won't be that bad. And staying warm, the best thing you can do, build a fire if you can in the fireplace. And I think what I did for the snowstorm in October 2011 I dragged a mattress out of the spare bedroom, put it right relatively close to the fire, and I slept under four blankets with a dog. So, <laughs> Yeah, we, you know, there, a guy just did a piece, in, an op-ed piece in, the, piece in the New York Times about uh, living in a house in Colorado where he tried keeping the thermostat at 45. Mm. And, yeah, I know. But he just said he, you know, he wore a lot of layers, you know, a lot yeah. of layers all the time and, uh, and, and fingerless gloves and stuff like that. And his only real problem was that his fingers would get numb when he was trying to type. I guess he's a writer, but it, it can be done. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess it can be. Um, well, Ryan Henry, and thanks for being with us. I'll just quickly end with a little uh, parable, which is that uh, so I think it was in 2011 that I loaned my roof rake to Bill Curry, who then broke it, didn't replace it, and got back in touch with me in 2013 to ask if I'd gotten another roof rake since he'd broken mine so that he could borrow that one. Now, that's bad form, Bill. Yeah, Come so on. never lend your roof rake to Bill Curry <laughs> or anyone, really. Forget all about that neighborly Yankee spirit. All right, thanks for being with us, Ryan. Hey, thanks a lot, Colin. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye. That's really true, by the way. Let it snow, let it snow. 
So then we started thinking, what do people really do during the storm that, that we can talk about on public radio anyway? Uh, and it's true. I mean, until your power goes out, you'll probably be watching a fair amount of television, movies on television, watching things on your computers. Um, and then eventually your power will go out and you'll be lying on the floor next to a candle, drawing pentagrams in your own body fluids on the wall. But that's that's later. That's like maybe Tuesday night. Uh, until then, you'll have lots of chances to, to see things, to sample culture. I've kind of gone ahead of you because I had the flu last week. So I've already actually exhausted all my cultural choices. So we had to call Linda Holmes. We wanted to call Linda Holmes. She's a writer at NPR's pop culture blog, Monkey C, and host of the NP- of NPR's pop culture happy hour. Uh, she's there right now in the Monkey C Weather St- Center uh, going over her computer models and maps, but not of meteorology, but of pop culture. Linda Holmes joins us now. Hi, Linda. Hello. So um, this is what you do. You know, you think about pop culture. You think about things that people might or might not enjoy uh, up here in the Northeast. Uh, it doesn't affect you so much, but we are getting getting ready to hunker down for a really long blizzard. What should we be hunkering down with on our computer screens? Well, you know, there are a couple different ways to approach this this sort of thing. I have we're not getting this one, but I have been there, mm-hmm. and it's always sort of a the, there's two options, right? You can go with the snow theme, right? You can go with kind of the icy snow theme. Uh, an exa- an idea for that, for example, would be Fargo. If it's been a while since you saw Fargo, the 1996 Coen Brothers movie, uh, try the movie. Very icy. Uh, I lived in Minnesota for for 10 years, and this is one of the only real representations of what it's like to have to scrape ice off your car when it's really cold that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, on top of the movie, there is then the 2014 FX series Fargo, which is not the same story as the movie, but it's kind of a spiritual cousin to the movie. Um, And that's very, very good. And those are both those are both streamable. So that's an option if you want to go uh, embrace the cold, embrace the feeling that your bones are freezing. Um, I I will say that, um, first of all, I love the Coen Brothers movie and I tried to get into the series and I haven't. But I think this is this is another thing that's going to happen here. I mean, if, in fact, people have television power and are snowed in for a couple of days, you know, you you gradually low lower your own standard a little bit. It's kind of like, okay, (laughs) maybe maybe I did watch the first five episodes. Maybe I'll watch the rest of Fargo. Um, I mean, I sort of sampled a few things over the last few days. You know how you do that. You sort of think, would I stay with this? Could I stay with this? One thing one thing I discovered, and I'm sure because of the title, this is a series that's very dear to your heart, but there's a new TV series version of 12 Monkeys, um, which I would just say if you have the flu, don't watch 12 Monkeys because, you know, anything about the plague, you know, and and wiping out human civilization. But it, it looked like it might have some potential. Yeah, I think epidemiology is a good thing to stay away from when you're already feeling a little paranoid about being stuck indoors. Right. Keep the mood light. So one of the things you're recommending is some reality shows, even for people who don't necessarily go there. Well, right. Like you were saying, this is a great time to say I'm stuck inside anyway. Once you're safe and the people you love are safe, you're kind of stuck. So you might as well take the opportunity to do something you wouldn't normally do. So if you want to go the other way and you want to go, uh, you want to watch warm weather, you want to watch people swimming and running around in bathing suits and that sort of thing, uh, I would suggest a season of Survivor. Now, a bunch of these are streaming on various services. My favorite season of Survivor is Survivor Cook Islands, which is not everyone's favorite season, but it is mine. And 
that's actually on Amazon Prime. So if you happen to have Amazon Prime, you can go ahead and stream that. It'll take up a good chunk of a snow day, and it's all um, people running around doing different challenges and games and running around in the woods and on the beach. And it's a good season for people who do not like reality television when it's only about jerks. I will just say that. All right. Um, by the way, if anybody wants to call in with their own suggestion, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. However, none of your ideas will be proprietary. Linda will be free to adapt them uh, as future episodes of the Pop Culture Happy Hour. Um, but anyway, do give us a call if you have recommendations. So um, another thing that one – by the way, if you have Amazon Prime and you haven't watched Transparent – you might want to watch that even before you watch anything of else. <laughs> I would recommend that even above Survivor, I know. Yeah. Um, so um, another thing you can do is catch up on movies. When I, when I had the flu, I concentrated more on television, uh, but I did watch a movie that I'd been meaning to see for a long time. I found it on demand somewhere. It's called No. It's set in uh, Chile uh, during the overthrow of Pinochet, except that it's this actually rather funny movie about uh, the television commercial campaign, the people who developed the television commercials that were used against Pinochet during during this time of uprising. And it's very Chilean and stuff like that, and I don't recommend it for everybody but if you if that strikes you as something that you might enjoy you might think about that but linda holmes you uh have a much better reputation as a movie recommender than i so <laughs> what have what have you got well you know one thing that happens to critics is you recommend things and people say i don't have the time i'm running around there's so much to watch this is an opportunity to say okay let's take a couple recommendations things that not enough people have seen Maybe take a chance on something. One would be uh, Joss Whedon's uh, 2012 Much Ado About Nothing. They shot this in black and white in 12 days at his house, sort of in between working on, around working on the Avengers. And it's got a good chunk of the Joss Whedon repertory company, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Alexis Denisoff and Amy Acker, but also Nathan Fillion and Clark Gregg and a bunch of those people who, if you watch a lot of Joss Whedon, you've seen. Um, it's, you know, it is what you would think. It is much ado about nothing. It is Shakespeare. It is lovely and kind of messy in a way that I that I like a lot. And that's available. I, Another, I'll, I'll just sort of chime in and say, I think, first of all, it, it is in black and white. If you're looking for sort of a lush you know, version of it, uh, then you have to do the Kenneth Branagh version. Uh, but um, it, he really gets the language nicely. You know, so much of our, whether we like Shakespeare or don't like Shakespeare, it depends so much on the way the lines are spoken and are they spoken conversationally in a way that we can follow the conversation. And I really th thought that that particular production, you know, you, one is never at a loss as to what is happening or what is being said. It doesn't make any difference how Elizabethan the language is. Everybody just does such a great job of, of putting that language across. I, I agree. I think they do a great job of of bringing a kind of a contemporary style to that to that language, and I I, I totally agree. And Nathan Fillion really is very funny as this sort of nominal policeman. Uh, he's he's so good in it. He's so funny in it. It's a it's a terrific terrific turn from him. All right, continue. Okay, so another one uh, would be a movie called Adventureland, which was done by uh, the writer and director Greg Matola, and it features three actors who I like to see in things where they're used exactly the right way. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg, Kristen Stewart, and Ryan Reynolds. And it's a story of Jesse Eisenberg plays a kid working at an amusement park, and... 
Um, it's one of those movies that you look at and you think more people should have seen and loved this movie. It comes from a, a universe of folks who have been embraced in lots of other projects. I don't really understand why it wasn't a bigger um, a bigger hit. But again, Adventureland, it's really good. It's sweet and funny, and I and I love that I, movie. I've, I've seen it, and my recollection also isn't – aren't Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig in that? Are, they are in, indeed. Yeah. They are indeed. And I think the commercials made it look like it was a kind of Apatovian – Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig, people goofing around movie, and it's much more deeply felt than that. It's actually quite, it's quite touching. I would, I would throw in there as sort of a companion to that. I, the, I, the movie it reminds me of a little bit is The Way Way Back, which is also a movie I think not enough people have seen, you know, and it, it, the, the tie-in obviously is that there's a, a water park in The Way Way Back that's one of the big sort of thematic elements, but um, so after you watch Adventureland and you're craving another one, uh, I'll throw in The Way Way Back. Alright, what do you got next? Oop, uh, we may have actually lost her ISDN connection. Is that is that possible? Linda Holmes? Linda Holmes? Yeah, she, we have lost. We'll try to reestablish um, her. But while we're doing that, maybe she just got bored because I was talking too much about the way, way back. But um, while we're doing that, let me mention a few things. And also I can sort of open the lines up if anybody else has great recommendations for um, things to watch to pass the time uh, as the snowstorm drags along. As I said, I really have been blazing the trail for you because I, I was home sick with the flu uh, for a few days. So uh, one that I watched the first season of, um, and then it, it turns out that not everybody, but many people here in the WNPR offices are at some stage of involvement with this series, is uh, something called The Fall. The Fall is uh, set in Belfast. Uh, it, is, it involves a serial killer. It's sort of a police procedural. The only way it's not a police procedural is that you already know who the killer is. You know from Jump Street, uh, although this has nothing to do with Jump Street. But you know from Jump Street who the killer is. Julian Anderson, who, who we all remember as Scully from uh, The X-Files, uh, is this kind of icy cold uh, police uh, detective, senior detective who's on loan from the British police force to uh, to Belfast to track down this serial killer. And then uh, the, the man who plays the serial killer will uh, be one of the stars of the forthcoming Fifty Shades of Grey. And I am told by the ladies in this office that even though he's a terrible serial killer in this, that he is easy on the eyes, as they say. But anyway, it's it's really, it's it's got that little theme that everybody has a deep, dark secret. Um that, you know, everybody has something that they sort of need to conceal. Uh, and I've only watched the first season. The second season is now available on Netflix, I believe. So there's that. Um, now, on the same theme of British police procedurals in which everybody has something that they need to conceal, I really recommend a BBC America series. I think it's BBC. No, it's Stars. Excuse me. It's Stars with a Z. It's called The Missing. Uh, it's um, uh, a um, this is going to sound very unappealing, but it's, it's about a couple vi- uh, on vacation in France, in northern France, uh, whose uh, five year old son disappears, is taken away from them. Hence the title, The Missing. Um, and uh, it's it was a really interesting psychological study. It most most of it does continue. It takes place over eight years, and it. Um, it does, most of it does unfold in France, although there's some pinging and ponging back and forth to London. But uh, a tremendous performance by an Irish actor, I believe his name is James Nesbitt, uh, who is spectacular as the uh, bereaved father. Uh, and uh, this this series, 
Um, I think there are eight episodes, and this is self-contained. This at least is one of these series that's not, that's not going to re-extend itself at some point. Uh, but uh, So you can get through all eight episodes pretty easily. And I think Stars is offering uh, some kind of special deal right now. So The Missing, I really do recommend it. And it really, more than almost any series like this that I've seen, it really gets that thing about everybody has a little story they just assume not have told. And when you start investigating people, those stories come out. I think we've got Linda Holmes back. Do we have you back? <laughs> Uh, you do indeed. I'm so sorry. I think uh, your snow prematurely knocked me out. It could have been. Well, I've been vamping creatively, but you're <laughs> you're uh, you're here just in time. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about. You know, I think when you're trapped in your house, mood is so important, right? I mean, like I said before, you don't want to be watching Twelve Monkeys if you're already feeling kind of uneasy right. about the immediate future. So it is good to know about comedies, um, mm-hmm. whether they're television comedies or movie comedies. Uh, but b- before we even get to that, I, I actually, we lost you before you, you'd come to your, your third movie in your Linda yes. Holmes Monkey See Marathon, and that is Stories We Tell, right? Right. I'm a big documentary fan, and Stories We Tell is a documentary that the actress and director, Sarah Polly did about the story of her family. And it's surprising and funny and and uh, very, very sweet. And I, I love that movie. Again, it's called Stories We Tell, and it's her investigating the story of her own family and her parents. Which which turns out to be very Rococo and elaborate. And and talk about it. I, just, I was saying everybody has a little secret. Everybody has a little story they haven't told. And it really turns out that there are stories in her family that are quite surprising. Absolutely. But at the same time, it's not. But nobody there are no bad guys in this movie. It's right. it's about everybody. It's about finding out that your parents are real and have flaws and stories of their own. All right. So uh, we've got a couple of minutes left. And uh, now I confess that I don't know. I think you have because it came up on uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour. I have not seen Broad City. I've not seen uh, Jane the Virgin. I feel as though there, there must be comedies like that out there anyway that I could watch in my gloomiest hour when I you know was wondering when is this storm ever going to end? Right. Uh, Broad City is a a show on Comedy Central that has two young women um, living in New York, kind of going through day to day things living in New York. And um, I think it's not it's not everybody's cup of tea. There are times when it's not my cup of tea, but it is really it's funny. And particularly, I think if you haven't ever seen it, um, seeing at least a few episodes of it to see where those women are coming from is really valuable and interesting. Uh, It's executive produced by Amy Poehler. And of course, if there are people left who have not uh, binged Parks and Recreation with Amy Poehler, that's uh, another very good one. And as you mentioned, Jane the Virgin, they make that one a little bit tougher to catch up on. But if you look in your various on-demand things, you might be able to find it. That's also a really, really good uh, sort of comedy drama that has gotten a lot of critical love this year. You know, one of the I was actually catching up a little bit on Parks and Recreation because I was feeling sick and vulnerable, and I thought that would be, you know, a very sort of benign kind of thing to watch. And you know, one of the ironies that, that struck me was who would have guessed when that series started that as it heads down the home stretch, the person who's really gotten too big to keep on the series is Chris Pratt. I mean, you know, everybody else maybe they could theoretically have been talked into another season or something, but Chris Pratt, who you know really kind of started out as a rather minor side player in this huge ensemble is just too huge a star right now to be doing a sitcom. Yeah, you know, he appeared recently at a television critics gathering where they did a big press conference about the end of Parks and Rec. And one of the things he said was he said, no, he said he never would have left the show. There's absolutely Hmm. no way. And of course, you know, people say the things they say, but he was very emphatic about saying there's absolutely no way I would have left the show if they still wanted to do it. Um, 
I think they're ending that show on their own terms at their own time. And I think everybody on that show has grown enormously through it. And I hope that they will all go on to to super fantastic other things. But yes, I mean, he's wonderful. And I've always been a fan of him. But yeah, he he's he's sort of the one who got the big business. He did, didn't he? Linda Holmes, so great to talk to you uh, from uh, NPR's pop culture blog, Monkey See, the host of NPR's pop culture happy hour. That's Linda Holmes. We've got to take a break. We're going to talk about books. Remember books? You used to read them before you started watching so much television. Well, guess what? When the power goes out, you're going to beg for your books back, buster. I've got a cancellation here. Tonight's post-apocalyptic puppet show attempting to recreate the time before the snows came has been moved to Thursday at the Buffalo God Cave. So mark your birch bark calendars, all right? Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Julia Pistel and Sydney Loro. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Hilton Catterley. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff trying to write their names in the snow before the wind died down, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, If the Roads Are Clear, a show about puzzles. And now, back to Colin. So imagine that uh, we're moving towards the part of the snowstorm where you all lose your power. I hope that doesn't happen. Maybe it will, though. But, you know, chances are you'll have candles and, and uh, little, I don't know, oil lamps or things like that. You'll still be able to read. So one of the things we want to do is acquaint you with this really interesting kind of – I'm using it as a motivational tool to kind of get me back in the habit of reading literary fiction. And what this is, it's a tournament sponsored by the Morning News. The Morning News is a terrific website. And uh, joining us right now is uh, one of the color commentators for this tournament of literary fiction. John Warner joins us right now. He's um, an editor-at-large for McSweeney's Internet Tendency and uh, a writer of fiction in his own right. Uh, John Warner, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So how many years now has this March Madness tournament of books been going on? This will be our 11th year. Wow. And it is more or less meant to mirror the basketball obsessions of March. The books are laid out in brackets. There's, I think, 16 as opposed to 64 or 68 or 680 or however many basketball teams there are now. But then, of course, the question would be, how does one book advance over another book? Each matchup is assigned a specific judge. The judge reads both books and whatever they say goes. So it's an entirely arbitrary, capricious decision by a single person who decides which book is superior to the other. So as each book advances, it it has a new matchup and a new judge until we get to the final two where all of the judges plus one extra person come back. So we can have 17. So we have an odd number. And majority rules, whichever book gets the most votes becomes our champion. So this sounds like a recipe for a bitterness, invective, and second-guessing. I assume that's where you come in as a color that, commentator. That's right. With each matchup, my colleague Kevin Guilfoyle and I come in and offer our version of color commentary beneath the judgment, where we might comment on the criteria. We, we may agree or disagree with the judgments. Pretty much my favorites always lose, so I'm <laughs> exercising some degree of my own angst. And then we have many, many commentators of our own commenters on the site who come in and will discuss the discussion. 
to the tune of you know 200, 300 comments per matchup, often getting in heated, passionate arguments of their own. You'll be forgiven if you don't know the answer to this because I can never remember who wins anything from the Oscars to the Super Bowls the previous year. But do you remember which novel won last year? Oh, man. See? Um, this is my theory is we have no actual repository in our brains to remember stuff like that. Like, I follow the Oscars really carefully, but then I don't remember six months later anything that won or it just, it's just all kind of gone. Yeah, no, I, I really can't. I mean, I, I can definitely name some of the winners in sort of tournament yeah. history. Sure, yeah. What are your, some of your either favorites or non-favorite winners in tournament history? My favorite may be Cloud Atlas, uh, David Mitchell's book, which okay. which is a, an early winner. Oh, I remember now. The winner last year was The Good Lord Bird by James McBride, which also won, I believe it was the National Book Award, which happens with some frequently frequency. Cloud Atlas is one of my all-time favorite novels, so that's it's an easy one to remember that won. And we should mention uh, that David Mitchell with the Bone Clocks is back in the tournament this year. Yeah, he, he's not the first repeat customer, but he's the contestant, but he's one of the first, he may be the first previous champion who's back in the tournament so he'll be the first that has the chance to win a second title with the bone clocks if i were an author i would probably feign unawareness of this entire process <laughs> obviously there are going to be some authors who know about it this time and anthony door who's in this this time for all the light we cannot see which probably in some ways is the big burgeoning kentucky type uh, favorite in this tournament at least certainly based on on it's sort of the goldfinch of this year anyway it's the book everybody right. knows and he's actually has uh, an association with the morning news there's no way he doesn't know about this but um are there other authors who have ever let on that they're kind of aware they're watching the brackets wondering how they're going to do yeah, there's for sure, it sort of divides on the types of writers that like to know what's going on around them and their books and versus the ones that would just rather be shut off from everything. And if it's a writer who doesn't mind letting letting that sort of stuff filter into their consciousness, they definitely know. Even this year we have, like Roxane Gay, her book is in the tournament and... An untamed uh, state. Untamed state, right. And she was a judge last year. So, mm. And she's also a very prominent Twitter presence, so I know she knows. David Mitchell, it might not be on his radar, but a lot of the writers, or Elena Ferrante, the Italian right. um, author... Uh, she would have to have the brackets translated for her. For, yeah, you know. yeah. There is no but Italian... There's no word in Italian for bracketology. So. <laughs> right. But a first-time novelist, Will Chancellor, of, who wrote A Brave Man, Seven Stories Tall, which is maybe my favorite book of the year, he definitely knows because he sent a sort of hurrah when it happened. Because for some of these writers, if, if you're not an Anthony Doerr or Elena Ferrante, uh, or you haven't won an award already like Phil Clay has for redeployment, getting this kind of notice really has a chance of boosting attention for your book. And I think there isn't a book in the country that doesn't crave more attention by your lights anyway and you just you mentioned your your possibly your favorite a brave man seven stories tall by will chancellor is there to your way of thinking a gonzaga right now is there somewhere in the, some, something that looks a little and actually the brackets themselves have not been laid out off out we know the 16 books in contention but i don't think the brackets have been released so far so you don't really know who's going against what but do, is there like a cinderella team somewhere uh, in this straw well, yeah, we don't have the brackets yet, although there, you can make some assumptions in terms of what might be a top seed, something like All the Light We Cannot See by, by Anthony Doerr, um, versus what's going to be a number four seed, like a novel Silence Once Begun by Jesse Ball, which is a very interesting 
kind of metafictional meditation on a very bizarre story from Japan where a brief description just can't do it justice. I could see a novel like that catching fire, finding the right judge and striking them just perfectly and and knocking off a, a number one seed, a, a Kentucky, and making it a couple of rounds. But it's it's often tough for those books to make it all the way to, quote-unquote, win a title. It takes a lot of being favored over and over again. And by and large, the winners tend to be relatively large consensus books. There's some exceptions. You know, last year it was The Good Lord Bird versus Kate Atkinson's novel Life After Life, which were probably two of the best-reviewed most read books of the year. So it's probably the biggest upset winner in the history of the tournament uh, was a novel from, I think it was 2012, The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt. Um, That, I think, was a relatively low seed off the radar book that came up and and captured enough judges to win. Uh, One uh, to keep your eye on, because this is sort of like one of those little schools like Wofford that gets in because it wins some tiny little conference that nobody's ever heard of, is uh, a a book called All the Birds Singing by Evie Wilde. And this is notable because the morning news took the unusual step. By the way, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about a tournament of books that will be starting in March. We're going to be offering intense coverage of it, uh, mainly to jumpstart my own reading of literary fiction. But the, the morning news took the unusual step of going of uh, soliciting a tiny independent bookstore. So I don't know if it's tiny, an independent bookstore somewhere in, in the middle of the country and said, you know, what's the book that you guys are in love with that you're recommending at the cash register? And that's how that one got in. And apparently, according to the, the narrative offered by the morning news, it wasn't really on anybody's radar screen there. So that would yeah. be one to keep an eye on. Yeah, that was a great example of, of really what the tournament illustrates is how arbitrary these awards are, where we had a long, long list of books that had gotten on our radars from readers, from ourselves, from reviews and that kind of stuff. And then when we asked the store, you know, what is, what's the one book you guys have been pushing into readers' hands? It was a book that wasn't even on our list and all the birds singing. So we're glad to have it. It's one I haven't read yet, but I'm going to get to it before the tournament. So I'm looking forward to it. Do you, you and Kevin Guilfoyle are the sort of the two commentators um, in the booth, so to speak, for this tournament. Do you guys pattern yourself against any? Do you see yourself as kind of a, a Bill Raftery or a, a you know, Billy Packer kind of figure? Is there any, anybody who really inspires you? Looking around for actually actual literary fiction, sports model, competitive, single elim- elimination, you know, there isn't really a lot to model yourself on. But yeah, when, in the world of sports commentary, do you have sort of somebody who, who sets the bar for you? Well, I don't know if it's quite a model, but I always, whenever I think of the booth, I think of Pat Summerall. He's, mm-hmm. He is my, uh, this betrays my age a little bit, I think, but he is my all-time favorite booth presence. And that's how I think of it, is, is he was a presence. But he was a, a self-contained, dignified presence. Yeah, that he just made you feel in good hands the second you heard him introducing the game and the matchups and... I think every booth, particularly play-by-play guy that has come after him, is, owes him a debt and patterns themselves after him. Does that but put pressure on Kevin to be kind of a blustering John <laughs> Madden, you know, every man looking for you know, crazy little details uh, about the size of the player's name on the back of his jersey, that, that kind of thing? He actually is probably more Pat Summerall than I am. I'm more likely to sort of vent a little spleen and that kind of thing because uh, he's a very even personality. Both of us tend to be pretty easygoing, though. We're both Chicagoans and Midwesterners, and and we both sort of exist outside the 
larger publishing or creative writing industry. So even though we're both writers and both very interested in these things, we get to take a bit of an outside stance and look at it with more curiosity and wonder than feeling that we're invested in the stakes. Well, I just want to say, first of all, that I'm fascinated. I've become very intrigued by this tournament, partly because in my own life I have made kind of a, and this is a very subtle transition, pay close attention. I've gone from reading a lot of literary fiction to not reading literary fiction. And and I, I can only really motivate myself at this point by competition or competition against myself or some kind of artificial rubric. And so um, I started a few, about a week ago, and I did read the Anthony Doerr book. I'm halfway through Sarah Waters' uh, book, The Paying Guests. Uh, and we are assembling a show here with Julia Pistel, uh, Rand Cooper, and Alex Dubin, all of whom are going to try to read all 16 of the books, I think. I'm going to do my best, too. Uh, and then uh, John and Kevin, we should say, are going to join us uh, on that day if, if everything works out ideally. So things begin kind of really the first week in March is the run-up to the, to the first ball being tipped, right? That's right. I think it's March 1st where we'll have the first matchup, and then it's, you know, we'll have a result every weekday. Monday through Friday, uh, and that takes the entire month of, of March. Uh, we also we have an extra round in there that we call the zombie round, where a book that has been previously eliminated gets to be resurrected and come back into the tournament based on a uh, popular vote of readers prior to the tournament. So that voting is closed. While we keep the results secret, there are some books in our 16 that may be eliminated that, that get to come back for that. It would be interesting if one of, there's a couple of books that are sort of post-apocalyptic, dystopian, <laughs> biological crisis kinds of books there. Uh, you've got Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer, and you've got uh, Station Eleven by Emily uh, St. John Mandel. It would be great if one of those was a zombie book because it kind of really fits into the uh, the overall vibe of those books. Yeah, that's right, especially Annihilation that has that feel of these sorts of beasts roaming the land. So uh, it would be a lot of fun if, if that could happen. All right, well, John Warner, we are so excited uh, about this. At least I am. I'm trying to gin up excitement. I should say to you people out there, though, run out right now. I mean, don't run, but go to a bookstore or fire up your Kindles or something and get a couple of these books from the Morning News Tournament of Books uh, so you won't feel left out as we head into, into March and we're going to be talking about this on the show. And John Warner, so great to have you on. We're going to be having you back in March when the tournament gets going. But uh, thanks for helping us handicap it today. Oh, I appreciate it. Really looking forward to it. All right. March Madness. Uh, we'll see you in March. On a snow day. People are freaking out about nothing. I remember when I was three years old, the snow was like almost over my head. Kion, when you were three years old, you were three feet tall. What are you now, five, six? Yep. Wait, does that mean we're getting over six feet? Uh... 